my sermon this morning is entitled The Shining. So if you're new here, or even if you're old here, this one's going to be really weird <laughs> and almost inappropriate. I won't tell you whether or not I've seen that movie. Um, and you won't tell me either because no one would want to admit that. But we're talking about The Shining because it is Transfiguration Sunday. And so if you could turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and, uh, and then also... Uh, we're going to go to the gospel reading today in Luke, Luke chapter 9. I, I went to New Zealand in January on a ministry trip. I got a chance to speak at a couple churches we are partnering with and uh, minister to some dear personal friends in the ministry out there. And I really thought that I was going to serve the Lord, but I found out that going to New Zealand was how he was serving me. And not just for the obvious reasons, like I got a sweet tan, and I got to try surfing, that sort of thing, but also because I realized that the Lord had basically set me up on many divine encounters that would prove to be instrumental for my life. I remember having one conversation with someone and I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I had a conversation with someone, and I said in the middle of the conversation, I just want you to know this conversation is changing my life right now. And he's like, oh, yeah, thank you. And I'm like, no, you're changing my life right now. And I actually want to explore what he said to me a little bit more. It was our good friend Andy Piggott. Andy is the uh, senior leader of uh, Bethel, New Zealand, uh, one of the churches that we partner with. We've sent a missions team down there years ago. And uh, they've been up here and spoken, with, uh, spoken in our community and, and encouraged us up here. And Andy is just a dear friend. And I tell him all the time that he's like a big brother to me in the faith. Like I look up to him and he's uh, years my senior, but he's also years ahead of me in his walk with the Lord and in his discipleship journey. So I, I send him emails and I bounce ideas off of him. And then he gives me this really honoring and gracious feedback and, and helps my, uh, my thoughts take shape. And so I was in New Zealand, and I was processing things with the Lord, and on my way to speak with Him, I was driving in the car, and the Lord revealed some things to me about uh, the future of our community and what's going to be happening. And it only makes sense for us to talk about some of this on Transfiguration Sunday, because Transfiguration Sunday is this really weird event in the life of Christ. And it's this really weird event we celebrate in the church calendar that immediately this Wednesday leads into Lent. For those of you who don't know, the church calendar is a way of processing the story of Jesus within a given year. Your calendar was devised by the Romans. Your days of the week and your months of the year are named after pagan gods. And it was primarily just to keep track of time in one system that everyone would abide by. But the early church fathers believed that it was important not to measure our lives just based on some arbitrary ideas, but instead to measure our lives based on the life of Christ. They thought that Jesus' life was so important that we should find our story inside his story. So instead of thinking, well, this is what I'm doing, and this is what I'm going through, and this is what my life is dealing with, if we follow the church calendar we are thinking about what Jesus was going through and what Jesus was dealing with. So we celebrate, of course, the birth of Christ at Christmas time, And then we go into the season of Epiphany, where we talk about how the Gentiles first received the light and the awareness of Jesus and, 
and came to follow Jesus because I'm assuming most of us are Gentile uh, believers in Jesus. And then we move out of Epiphany at Transfiguration Sunday. We move into Lent. And Lent celebrates. I know it's weird to say Lent celebrates. But Lent is the period that marks the 40 days where the Gospels say Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew he was going to die and he travels to Jerusalem on one final 40-day journey, ministering and preaching and connecting with his disciples. And he's heading toward Jerusalem knowing that his death and resurrection are imminent. And so we join Jesus on his journey toward Jerusalem in the season of Lent. And many people decide to fast as part of that process. Okay, So, you know, some people uh, fast meat. Some people fast uh, food entirely. Uh, I have a friend who's in, who might be embarking on a 40-day uh, just water fast, uh, which is good for him. God bless that man. I don't know if I, uh, I could do it, but it's an incredible uh, thing when people want to follow Jesus on that journey. And then, uh, you know, some other people want to fast negativity, right? And so they go through their period of Lent and they just decide, you know what, I'm not going to be cynical or mean or critical. I'm not going to swear when anyone cuts me off on the highway. I'm just going to practice joy and positivity, and I'm going to give thanks every time I'm tempted to criticize someone. That's a beautiful thing to fast from, is if you fast from negativity, it's, it's doable. It's, about as hard, it's probably a little bit harder to fast than food, but it's probably just as good for you. So... This, the, the Sunday of Transfiguration is so weird because it's this story where the disciples, and we'll read it in a moment, the disciples follow Jesus up on a mountain to pray. Jesus liked to pray on the mountains, and so they follow him up on this mountain to pray, and when they find Jesus in prayer, they find him standing and glowing. He's glowing like a nightlight, but in the day. And they're two top dog heroes. Okay, they're Gretzky and Bobby Orr's, if you will. Moses and Elijah are, are on either side of him. Like any good Jewish person, like Moses and Elijah are the top dogs, right? And they're on either side of Jesus, and the three of them are talking. And then this weird thing happens. They're, Jesus is talking with them, and they hear what he's talking about, but they don't understand, and they aren't really listening. And then Peter offers to build them a temple, and the voice of God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then whatever caused the lights to turn on goes off, and Moses and Elijah disappear. And the other two are like elbowing Peter, like, man, you screwed it up for us. Why'd you do that? You should just shut up when you have a chance. And then they come down the mountain, and they agree, not because Jesus says so, but they just agree they're not going to tell anyone this until after Jesus rises from the dead. Then they realize, oh, hey, that was a really good story. We probably should have told someone about that. And so it ends up in the Bible. You know what? Let's just read it together. Again, we, sometimes we read the Bible so frequently that we become desensitized to its content because we jump to its meaning. So, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now, about, uh, now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. It's a tight ad. Suddenly, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. So Jesus becomes bright and dazzling, and Moses and Elijah appear, and they're talking about Christ's departure, and this makes the two dudes with Jesus sleepy. But since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and in those days told no one of any of the things they had seen. I used to think that this story was primarily about retroactively proving Jesus' divinity after he had risen from the dead. And I thought this story where Jesus kind of turns on the brightness and they see him in God mode. I thought this story about Jesus turning on God mode was primarily about glorifying his divinity and celebrating that Jesus really was God. And I thought that they included this story in the Bible as kind of proof that all along, even though Jesus was on the surface, this ordinary human, secretly, behind the humanity, tucked away somewhere deep, was God himself. And at any moment, he could turn on his radiant powers and change his clothing to white, and his eyes brighten up, and his face is like a light bulb. And we go, he was secretly God the whole time. Now, why they get sleepy, I didn't understand. Why they kept it a secret, I mean, that's a great testimony. If you want to get people to follow, you just have to tell them, hey, this dude isn't just God. He can like turn the God mode on and he can shine bright for everyone to see, right? That would be a, that'd be a really compelling way to bring people to Jesus. You just find a dark tent somewhere and you have him stand in the corner, right? And then they just go through one at a time and ta-da! <laughs> but instead of that, they keep it a secret. And when the, Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah, they're not really listening. So they're receiving this moment, this encounter, in a wrong way. And even though they're hearing him, they're not really understanding who he is. Even though they're seeing him, they're not really receiving him as he is. And as I began to reflect on this and why Jesus was shining, I thought... This really is important for us as a community, and I think it's, well, I'll say it this way, it's really important for me, because I realize that I have misunderstood where Jesus' glory really is. So, before I get to that, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is Paul talking about the glory of God revealed in Christ. He's talking to a group of people who have in some ways, they've parted ways with Paul. The context of the second letter of Corinthians is that Paul was providing oversight to the Corinthian church, and they, long story short, they didn't really like what he had to say, and they didn't really like his leadership. And they had bought into some false ideas about Paul and his influence. 
And so he writes them another letter to basically say, I have loved you as a father, and I have tried to build you up in Christ this whole time. I'm not trying to control you. I'm trying to release you to the glory that has been revealed in Christ. Okay? That's a summary of the first uh, three chapters put in you know, a very simple par- paraphrase. But verse 12 says this, Since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness, not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Okay, so what does Moses have to do with this? Because obviously Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. Well, one of the things I've begun to learn is that pretty much everything that happens in the life of Jesus is the fulfillment of something that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And a really important story about a dude with a shining face coming down off a mountain in the Old Testament. Like, kind of, for a good Jewish person, the original story of a dude shining like a nightlight is when Moses went up to the mountain to receive the covenant for Israel to walk in. This is in Exodus 33, for those of you who are keeping track. In Exodus 33, uh, Moses is up on the mountain. He's receiving the law, and he wants to see the full glory of God. He wants to witness the face of God. And as he's asking to see the face of God, God says, I will not show you my face, but I will show you my back as I pass you by, and I'll hide you in a cleft of a rock. And so all of God's goodness, which is his glory, passes by Moses. Moses sees it as it's leaving, and when he comes down from the mountain, his face is radiant. And it's so bright, and it makes the Israelites so uncomfortable that they decide that he has to wear a veil over his face. And not only that, but every time he goes into the presence of the Lord in the tent of meeting, his face starts shining again. And it makes them so uncomfortable that they ask him, they're like, hey, Moses, can you you put the veil back down? So Moses is this leader of a million slaves in the desert who has to wear like a bridal veil all the time. (laughs) Because every time he goes in to see the Lord, he has to cover his face so that the shining doesn't intimidate them. So here's what brings this all together. Paul is saying that what happened at the transfiguration is connected to what happened with Moses on the mountain. And here's the connection. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about veils and temples. Why did Moses' face get covered with a veil? And why was Peter's first instinct when he sees Jesus in his glory... To build a temple. Like, for those of you who who aren't aware, building a temple is not a weekend job. This isn't like a backyard shed. This isn't something that you just pick up on a pallet and drop in your backyard. This is a temple. This is like, they bring the cedar in from Lebanon, and they melt all their precious jewelry to get the gold, and they bring in diamonds, and they, like, his instinct to build a temple was silly in and of itself. But what was the reason why his first reaction to seeing God's glory 
was to build a temple. And why did, when Moses came down the mountain after seeing the glory and the radiance of God, why did the Israelites say, hey, cover up your face. You're too bright, man. Because if it was me, I would think, man, I want to look at that face. Like, your face is glowing. That's crazy. But instead, they want to cover up his face. And Peter, when he sees the glory of Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah, he wants to stick them into temples. (laughs) Here's the thing about veils and temples. The first reason why Peter wanted to build a temple I believe, and the, Moses, and the Israelites wanted to cover Moses' face with a veil, is the first reason why you want to put a veil on a glowing face or put a temple around a glowing body is you want to capture what you have. Remember, it's right as they're leaving. Peter's like, wait, 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 wait. We'll build three temples, like three really sweet places where you guys can live here permanently. Don't leave. Don't let this moment leave. We're going to capture it. And then the second reason why is they want to protect it. They want the glory that's been revealed to be preserved and kept safe. And they want it to last for as long as possible. And then the third reason is to hide. They want Moses, the glory that's on Moses' face to be hidden from them because it's convicting them somehow. Maybe they want to hide Jesus and Moses and Elijah away so that they can kind of keep them for themselves. But then in hiding them, they also want to distance themselves from them because of this intimidation and this conviction. And then finally, a veil and a temple is a form of suppressing and obscuring the glory that's revealed. I used to think that these stories, Moses coming down from the mountain with a glowing face, (laughs) Moses and Elijah and Jesus speaking in glorified bodies about Jesus' death and resurrection, I used to think that these stories were primarily about divinity being too powerful and too holy and too significant and too special for humans to understand and receive. And now I realize that both the Israelites and the disciples were motivated by shame. And shame, for a good reason, tries to create distance from glory and from truth and from honesty and from God. Shame, for good reasons, wants to put a barrier between you and the reality of the situation. And so Peter, when he thinks of building Moses, Elijah, and Jesus a temple... What was the temple to him? The temple was the highest, most glorious place of the Jewish faith. It was the place where people meet with God. He is saying, I want to honor the three of you with the most holy building for the most holy people. 
It seems like such a great intention. But the building is a way of separating himself from the reality he's seeing. A temple is a place where my shame can be appropriated. Because I don't feel comfortable being around you. So instead, I put you in a room to capture the glory you have and to distance myself from that glory. And maybe as I come into your temple, I can wash my hands and clean up my mess. And then when I'm finally ready, I can come before you. But Jesus didn't reveal his glory to Peter, James, and John when they were ready for it. He didn't reveal himself to them after they had purified themselves. Jesus didn't need a temple to be glorified. He was fine with revealing the truth of himself up on the mountain, where there was no temple, where there was no veil. He fully revealed the reality of who he was. And Peter's first reaction is, I need to create some space from this. Because this is divine and I am human. This is perfect and I am broken. I need to separate myself for your sake and for mine. I've come to realize that a lot of what I do in life is motivated by my own shame. I'd like to say to you that that shame itself, the motivation of shame itself, is kind of a rejection of humanity. But I believe now that the transfiguration was not a revelation of Christ's divinity. It was a revelation of his perfect humanity. What was the thing that Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about on the mountain as he was being glorified? It was his departure and his death. It wasn't that he was in God mode overcoming and overriding all the problems of life. The glory of Jesus was that he was about to submit and surrender to the most shameful death imaginable. The glory that was revealed in Jesus was not the glory of, of him being the kind of God that was secretly not really human all along. The glory that was revealed in Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, was that he was perfectly human without shame. You know, there's one thing about the crucifixion for 2,000 years we've not represented accurately. Nobody. Nobody has. The one thing we always change about the crucifixion is not how violent and gory it was. The one thing we always change is the fact that Jesus was fully nude on the cross. You never see Jesus depicted as fully nude on the cross. Why? Why? For, for those of us who want to be accurate, right? <laughs> Biblically literate. They took off all his garments. They hung him there naked, bleeding to death. Why don't our crucifixes have Jesus fully nude? Why? Because of shame. Because it's too much exposure. It's too much honesty. And to see the frailty of an ordinary human man, fully exposed, bleeding to death, is too much for us. So we think to ourselves, we are dignifying him by putting a little piece of fabric around him so that he is not exposed to us. 
But on the Mount of Transfiguration, his glory is fully revealed to us. And what is his glory? His glory is that he surrendered his life even unto death on a cross. What humans meant to shame him was what God used to glorify him. Jesus, instead of hiding his shame, instead of avoiding his weakness, Jesus surrenders to the ultimate form of weakness in crucifixion. And it is in this crucifixion that he is glorified. And all of us with unveiled faces seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror are being transformed into the same image from one degree or kind of glory to another for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. And the verse before says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You see, the glory that Moses saw on the mountain was glory that shone from God that was reflected on his face. But the glory that was revealed in Christ was not reflective. The glory came from within him. The Mount of Transfiguration is a revelation of what perfect humanity actually looks like. It's a revelation of who you and I were created to be. But this isn't the glory that's always revealed in us because like the Israelites, in our shame, we put veils and temples and policies and procedures in the way. Like, growing up, I can't tell you how many times I heard people say this. I will come to your church once I get my life straightened out. Like, I'm, I'm, I, I, I use foul language. I drink a bit too much. I'm not good enough to go to your church. I need to clean my mess up before I come to your church. Or how many times I, as a young person, felt guilty about my sin, and so therefore what I would do is I would try to quickly repent and cry and clean up my mess before I'd come before God because he was far too holy for me to witness him and for me to love him and for me to interact with him. How many of you, how many of you have heard that before, that God is too holy to look upon sin? Did you know that that's only one verse in the Old Testament and in context it's actually saying the opposite of that? The prophet says, you are too holy to look upon sin, so why are you interacting with me? God's holiness does not keep him from sinful people. God's holiness drives him to save sinful people by giving up his life in a full revelation of his frailty, his humanity, and his weakness. He takes not just our sin, but all of our shame upon himself. And he keeps nothing in between us and him. He's not hiding anything. He's not obscuring anything. He doesn't need a veil. He doesn't need a temple. He is fully at peace, fully reconciled with the humanity within him. God is not violated by the human condition. And I think that that isn't true. Like, even as I'm telling it to you, I'm like, I don't really believe that. Like, when they put him up on the cross in the crucifix scenes, he's always super muscular. He's never fat. Maybe he's a little too skinny, but you know what I mean, right? Jesus doesn't burp. He doesn't have moles in unforeseen places. 
He's not really human. We don't like to think of him as fully human because it makes us uncomfortable and it leads us to confront the thing that's actually in our way, which is that we would actually prefer to transcend our humanity. We'd like to get better than our weaknesses. We'd like to be something better than human. So when we see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, we think, aha, he's divine and he's going to lead me to divinity. He's going to help me uh, transcend all of my limitations and my weaknesses. In heaven, my glorified body isn't going to be gaining weight and losing hair. In heaven, I'm going to look like Brad Pitt. I made this joke to my therapist, and I got in trouble for it. I said, you know, every guy is saying to themselves secretly, oh, you know, I could probably get in a little bit better shape. But in their head secretly, the shape they want to get into is Thor. (laughs) They're all like, oh, one day I'm going to look like Thor. We have a thousand ways to reject our own humanity. We have women from a very young age who feel insecure about their faces, so they put their own kind of veil through layer upon layer of makeup. And I am not against makeup, and and my family's not against makeup. My wife loves it. It's a form of self-expression, so please don't misunderstand me. We're not becoming those kind of Pentecostals that keep women from wearing makeup. There's like women all over this place are like, ah, wait, no, don't. Don't go there. I'm like, I don't want to go there. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying makeup is wrong. I'm saying wearing it as a mask to hide your humanity is a form of shame. And it's a form of shame that I honestly, I understand. Because it comes early and it happens often and our culture reinforces this message. You are not good enough as you are. And what I've realized is that out of a motivation of shame in my heart, out of a desire to overcome my human weakness, I have lived a life of dishonesty. I have lived a life trying to live up to the projection I have for myself. I am not me. I am the me I'm supposed to be. And I really believe that God is bringing us as a community into a place where we do not try to overcome our shame through hiding it with veils and temples. But rather, where we make peace with our humanity and we embrace and celebrate our weaknesses. We actually glory in them. And out of that comes a truth. Out of that comes a radiance. You see, because Moses felt unworthy and Moses saw a reflection, but Christ was radiant from within him because he had no shame. And Paul says, we with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord is in a mirror. I say this to you all the time, and I'm just going to say it to you again because it's worth saying again. A mirror doesn't reveal who you were yesterday. A mirror doesn't reveal who you are tomorrow. A mirror reveals who you are right now. 
Paul, sorry, Paul, Peter and James and John looking upon Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration are looking at the prototype for all humanity. He's the OG design for what a human is. They're looking upon the truth of humanity, not as it would be, not as it would be if you got your act together, not as it would be if you prayed a little harder and tried a little harder and cleaned up your messes, but who you are right now. And as I'm telling it to you, I I can see you don't believe it as much as I don't believe it. We don't actually believe this because we know deep down that we could do better. We know that we could sin less. We know that we could be more faithful. And so if you're anything like me, you live with a sense that you're trying to push yourself up into a better kind of faith. And in doing so, you want to transcend your humanity. And in doing so, you don't actually really like the fact that you have some weaknesses. You certainly don't glory in them. Weaknesses are things that you're supposed to improve. They're they're areas you're supposed to get better at. They're not things you're supposed to acknowledge and own and accept. Like, who makes peace with their problems like that? Right? Life is only long enough for you to work really, really hard on your problems and then die. See, this is why the gospel is not a self-help program. There's no helping yourself. You actually can't get any better than you are. You were made in the image and likeness of God. The sooner you see that as in a mirror, the sooner radiance comes up and out of your heart and reflects through your face. Where you shine with the glory of God, not because you witnessed something that's unlike you, but because you saw something free from shame and you accepted your humanity and it is revealed through the glory that comes up from within you. The transfiguration is meant to reveal who you actually already are. And it's not the person who got their act together. It's not the person who overcame all their problems. It's not the person who walks around with veil after veil, hiding themselves and the truth of their experience from other people. It's the person who has accepted their weakness, accepted their humanity, and realized, I am the person that God loves, and I am the person God has glorified. God is in love with you, not the you you're trying to be, not the you you're pretending to be. He's in love with you. And if you don't know that, see, the worst thing in the world is that there are so many Christians who come and go from church and they think God loves the person they're becoming and not the person they are right now. And as such, they never change and they never enjoy the glory of God because they think God's in love with a fiction. And so they live out of a lie trying to get over their shame with their own best efforts. And when they see God's glory revealed, they go, that's too much for me. Please, please put a veil over that. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the shameful things that one hides. So what does this ministry look like? Paul says this ministry looks like renouncing the shameful things that one hides. You can't renounce shame until you acknowledge it. 
I used to think that this verse was saying, we as good Christians look at all the shameful things the world is doing and we say, you're bad. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the rest of the world is caught up in a shame cycle of avoiding and hiding the shameful things that break down their true humanity. And we acknowledge them, we bring them to the light of Christ, and then we renounce them as not true. <laughs> See, you didn't think this sermon was going to be so weird because I talk so much about nudity, but I got to talk about nudity again. Jesus is never depicted as naked on a cross because it makes us uncomfortable as we look upon him and it makes us uncomfortable thinking about how he must feel to be depicted naked. And I am not going to say this to convict any one of you. I will say it as a form of confession of shame. I don't like the look of my own body when I'm naked. Like I'd rather sneak into the shower and not acknowledge the fact that I've been gaining a few pounds. So out of that shame... I carry in my own body, I carry a sense of self-rejection. I carry a sense of like, oh, if you would try a little harder, <laughs> if you'd get to the gym a little bit more often, if you just wake up earlier, you wouldn't look like this and then you'd be happy with yourself. In fact, if you worked really hard and you looked like Thor, then you could be glorious. Then you could walk around like just boom all the time, right? Check this out, which way to the beach, right? You, I would feel good, and then you'd all feel good looking at me, right? You're like, wow, he's just jacked. But that's not how, that's not how this works. This is a very weird public confession, by the way. I just want you to know, very few of you will have this experience that I'm having right now. But like, my kids are young enough that you still have to help them, right? You still have to help them in the bath and in the shower, right? And so we're going swimming, and, you know, we're in the family change room. And I watch my kids, totally unaware of their own nakedness. Like, they have no self-concept. The first thing is that they love being naked. Like, they want to be naked all the time. And secondly, not only do they want to be naked, but they have no awareness of their nakedness once they're naked. It's like it feels good, but they have, no, they have no judgment upon their own bodies. And here I am with them, and I'm realizing, if I don't get my act together and own my shame, I'm going to transfer upon them a sort of self-rejection that I have. There are a lot of things that we do out of shame, and we don't even realize it. There are a lot of lies we tell ourselves. There are a lot of, honestly, most of all, there are a lot of shoulds. You should do this. You should do that. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. You should really go to bed earlier. You should really wake up earlier. It's the early bird that gets the worm. You should be eating better. You should be reading your Bible more. You should be praying harder. You know, if you prayed harder, a lot more things would happen. You should be more honest 
more confrontational, but also more sensitive. You should be kinder, but you should also be a little bit tougher. You should be willing to speak your mind, but you should never step on anyone's toes. Honestly, we're shooting all over ourselves. I realize I wake up every day and I go to bed and I probably tell myself 40 things I should do and I shouldn't do. And I've realized that that is not where the glory of God resides in me. The glory of God resides in me in the human being I am right now. And the sooner I own it and accept it, the sooner I can renounce it. When I say renounce, what I mean is not that I then reject part of myself, but I I incorporate it into who I am and don't make it the totality of who I am. Anything you suppress gets bigger and scarier and uglier. Anything you put a veil on actually becomes more and more intimidating. See, the Israelites thought, oh, we're honoring the glory of God and the glory of Moses by putting a veil on his face. But Paul says, actually, the veil ended up on their hearts. They could never receive the truth because the veil was upon them. But do you want to know what actually leads people to Jesus? It's we with unveiled faces who have already woken up to the glory of God revealed in Christ. And we are shame-free people. Not because we're perfect, not because all the dudes are Thor and because the girls have the perfect makeup set up, but because we've accepted our humanity and we've celebrated that God loves us as we are. And the thing that takes the veil off of other people's faces is when they wake up to the same reality. The saving grace of Jesus, the saving grace that died for your shame and mine, it applies as much to them as it does to us. And the people who hide and try to suppress who they are are the people who end up putting the veil on their own eyes. But we with unveiled faces who acknowledge, accept, and allow God to transform the hidden and shameful parts of our lives, we are the ones who radiate with the glory of God. Because like little children who love to be naked, we actually become free from our own self-awareness. We become free from our own self-imposed limitations where we demand and require more and more of ourselves and we say, I should be doing this and I should be doing that and meanwhile we become more trapped and more blinded to the truth that God has given to us all along which is that he loves us. He accepts us. This is why where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. (laughs) If Ian was playing the old classics, right? Where the Spirit of the Lord is. No? No one? Okay. (laughs) Clearly, wrong moment. See, I used to think that the spirit of the Lord bringing freedom was about God coming from the outside in his divinity and in his holiness and with great benevolence reaching down to lowly, ugly Connor and just, boop, making him a little bit better. That is not the way we're transformed from one glory to another. We're transformed from one glory to another when we realize that he is living inside of us and that he has made us in the image and likeness of God. And me, 
overweight me, me who swears sometimes when someone cuts me off in traffic, me who gets angry and who doesn't like it, me who handles things immaturely, me who watches movies I probably shouldn't watch, me is loved by God. It doesn't mean the shameful things are good things, but until I accept myself as the, God, as the person God loves, I will never see the glory of God radiate through the vulnerability of my human experience. Jesus was at peace with his humanity. He said, I can do nothing by myself. <laughs> Jesus was so at peace with his own humanity and his weakness that he let people he created put him on a tree and kill him. Can you imagine the self-restraint? I believe that God is bringing us into a new kind of freedom. A kind of freedom that embraces and receives the humanity he's given us as a gift. The kind of, the kind of freedom that considers our weakness something worth celebrating. You are not good at everything. You don't have to be good at everything. Instead, you're part of a bigger body of Christ. And we're the ones who look upon his face and we see our true nature. And this is what leads people into perfect freedom. So I'd like to pray for us, myself included. I know that this moment is very vulnerable for many of you, and I, I completely understand that because it's, it's been very vulnerable for me. <laughs> Here's what I want to pray. I want to pray that for every place of hidden shame that you carry and that I carry, that you and I would not be exposed in a way that makes us more afraid, but that love would shine its light on that place to draw us out. Perfect love casts out fear. So when God draws his attention to the place of shame that's existing in your heart, that's making you try to be something that you're not, that's making you try to live up to a performance or to a standard that really doesn't exist, when God draws his attention to that place of shame, it's always as an invitation for you to receive his grace and for you to walk in deeper relationship with him and with other people. So what I'm going to pray is that as God has drawn his focus upon these places in our hearts, that it would bring real liberation to us and that we wouldn't be afraid, that we wouldn't be tempted to reach for a veil but that instead we would accept that he loves us really that's what this is about it's about the fact that he loves us